danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 326 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brokus. With me is Nate Mavis. How's Melrose, Massachusetts, Nate? It is beautiful. How is, how is Owings Mills, Maryland? Uh, well, it's pouring rain, so not beautiful in that sense. But, uh, well, when we're recording this, I'm 99.9% finished writing Play Optimal Poker 2. By the time people are hearing it, Play Optimal Poker 2 is out and available. So uh, that is extremely exciting. Yeah, that's a lot better than sunny weather and you being way behind on your book. <laughs> yes. How does it feel? Uh, it's relief and, I mean... <laughs> There's always a little bit of like anxiety in putting something like this out in the in the world, but I feel pretty good about it. Like I'm not really um, worried that it's not going to get a good reception or something. Like I think it's a it's a high quality product. I've already gotten good feedback. I know I've had a fair number of people who have read all or part of it already, and, and you know told me that they find people whose opinion I respect and told me that they find it valuable. So uh, I mean, the, the worst thing that can happen is that it's a flop commercially. But uh, in terms of like, I'm I'm not going to be embarrassed by like the content of it. I feel very good about that. That's great. That's great. Also, probably better than an economically successful book that you're embarrassed of. Yeah, it would depend on how economically successful. But, <laughs> but yeah, w- within the scope of what a poker book is likely to do, yeah, I'd, I'd rather sell fewer copies and have it be a book that I'm I'm proud of. Fantastic. Yeah, Fantastic. We, we start talking about millions of copies, and maybe I'll sell out the integrity a little. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, and. Like very broadly, for people who might know a little bit about your first book, what what is this one? It is a continuation of what I think of as the the project of the first book, which is really to help people understand poker and the game theory of poker. Uh, the goal is not necessarily to teach you or to get you to play a strategy that we might call game theoretically optimal or equilibrium or something like that, but it is to help you understand what that strategy would look like so that you can uh, choose the strategy intelligently that you do want to play when you are actually playing and so that you can actually think strategically. Um, the first book focused a lot on the idea of polarized versus condensed ranges. Uh, one player is more likely to have strong hands than the other. And you know how should the player with the strong hands bet? How should the player who has the more medium strength hands uh, respond? Putting together strategies for those players, that is to some degree. Well, it, it's it's definitely what play looks like on the river. Um, it's a relevant factor on early streets, but there are other factors that go into decisions about betting and calling and raising on early streets that I did not get into in that first book. So this second book is looking more in depth at play on, on early streets. Uh, the subtitle is Range Construction, which is how I encourage people to think about it, that you're not playing one hand. You are thinking about how to put together a range for a given situation. And then you have to think about where your current hand fits into that range. So you should be thinking about how often do I want to raise in this situation? 
is my current hand a good candidate for raising or not? Uh, why? What would make me, if it's a close decision, what would make me prefer calling versus raising? And um, there's more to it than just, do I have a nuts advantage or am I the player who's more likely to have a nutty hand? Uh, you need to think about things like denying equity to your opponent, pot control, board coverage. There are some more complicated factors, which is why I left them out of the first book. I thought game theory, just introducing game theory is going to be intimidating enough for a lot of people that I didn't want to uh, get too far into the weeds. And uh, now we're getting into some more um, advanced and... and uh, exciting i think <laughs> concepts in the second book right 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 so maybe not maybe not into the weeds but you're pulling out the irons you know left, left the <laughs> yes. we're, we're, we're in the rough a little bit yes all right very good very good well congratulations i'm 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 eager to see how it does and you know watch you uh, uh ride the wave of poker publicity for a while <laughs> It's funny, you know, I'm, um, it, it is fun to talk about thing, a thing that you made, but the, like the marketing side of things does not come naturally to me. Like that, that is really the part that feels more like work to me than the writing of the book. Uh, the, the writing of the book is kind of, um, I mean, there's, there's a meditative aspect to writing. I, I'm sure you know that, that part. And, um, it's also like, I'm, I'm studying poker at the same time that I'm working on it. You know, th this book was not just me dumping a bunch of knowledge that I already had onto a page. A lot of it is stuff that I was investigating to some degree for my own edification. Like I wanted to know the answers to these questions better than I did. I had a sense of what the answers were likely to be, but I definitely learned things in the course of writing this book like it was a, a an academic exploration for, for me as well it wasn't just an information dump so the actual writing process was kind of um fun and rewarding and i think plays to my uh strengths and the the promotional stuff is that's sort of the part that feels a little bit more like work to me like i i wish you could just sort of put a thing out there and say oh let the product speak for itself and i think to a large degree it will but uh, i know that there are things that i i can and should do to um give give the product an opportunity to speak to people so that they can hear what it has to say for itself. And uh, yeah, that's, that's the phase that I'm entering now, which I guess is uh, part of what we're doing now. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a coincidence that almost every product in the world and really basically every product in the world that's successful uh, has marketing that comes along with it. So mm -hmm. yeah, good, good, good call. Not ignoring that part. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I do think that the this podcast is the the best marketing that there is for it. And I don't even just mean like mentioning it on the podcast, but I mean for people who listen to this show. Uh, I mean, I think you 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 kind of know what you're going to get from from the book. Maybe not the exact content of it, but you've heard me talk about strategy, and you know, obviously, like the way that I think about the game has been influenced by Nate as well. So you've heard strategy conversations between us. You know what kind of stuff we get into. You know how we approach it. Uh, you know how I explain things. That's what you're going to get from, from the book. I mean, if, if you like the strategy segments on this show, then uh, I think you're going to like the, the content of the book. I do recommend for people, uh, I think almost everyone should read the first Play Optimal Poker before they read this one. Um, even if the content of this one sounds more interesting to you, you're likely to need the scaffolding from the first one. Unless you're already like kind of deeply familiar with uh, core game theory concepts and how they apply to poker, and you really like just want the details, um, I think for, for the large majority of uh, people and, and certainly podcast listeners, 
it's going to make sense for them to read the first book first. I imagine like Mike Stein might be an exception to this. Um, someone who you know, understands the the game theory part pretty well already, but maybe hasn't thought really deeply about how it applies in um, you know some of the details of applying it in in uh, specific situations. But I think most people, it's going to make sense to read the first one first. Yeah, I agree. It, the 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 parlay of being in a position to benefit from the second book and not really needing the first book first, that's a rare thing. It, it, it really ought to be read first. Now, the good news is I've just put a deep discount on the first book to help people do that. Uh, this is for the ebook only, but the ebook is available. Of, this is for the, the original Playoffs from a Poker. It is available at uh, Amazon or from nitcast.com, N I T C A S T.com. You can get the ebook for $9.99. So that's 67% off the original list price. Um, that's just kind of to encourage people who haven't picked up the first one yet, uh, you know, before they get the second one. I, I, you want people to read the first one, so I want to make that nice and easy and economical for people. Uh, the the new book, which is about range construction, Play Optimal Poker Two, that is available from the same sources. It is available uh, paper. If you if you want a paper book that has to come from Amazon, you can get uh, regular or large print. Uh, both I'll have editions of both that are available on Amazon. If you want an ebook, you can get it from Amazon or you can get it directly from nitcast.com. The advantage of getting it from nitcast is that you'll get not just the Kindle version, but you'll also get a PDF and an EPUB. So if you have an e-reader other than uh, Kindle, then you're going to want to get it from nitcast. That sounds great. Uh, people who are subscribers to the Thinking Poker newsletter or are members of of the Thinking Poker Facebook group will have seen already. Uh, I released the table of contents a week ago, um, but I thought people might be curious to know, you know what exactly is in, is in the book. You know, I, I spoke at kind of a high level about what, what it is, but um, it, it starts with a little bit of a review of the important concepts from Play Optimal Poker, and I'll just emphasize again, you know, th this is not really a substitute for reading Play Optimal Poker. It's designed more to just kind of remind, like, if you read that book six months ago or whatever, um, you know, th this will be useful to remind you of, like, what are the important things to remember from that book that you'll need to know coming into this one. But I think it, it's not really going to explain those concepts if you don't already know them. It's mostly a, a reminder. Um, the last, first concept... Last time on Play Optimal Poker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the, the first concept here, and this is actually one that I have been familiar with for a long time, and it's something that uh, it led me astray when I first kind of discovered like the Ace-King-Queen game and, and uh, I guess the game theory in general, reading like Mathematics of Poker. And David Sklansky actually wrote an article addressing the same uh, concept, which is the idea of, of leverage, that when you anticipate having a nuts advantage on a later street, like I know on the river, which of course we, we rarely know this in real life, but um, if I knew on the river that I'm going to be able to, uh, I, I'm going to have strong hands that my opponent will not have. Like I'm more likely to have nutty hands than he is. So I'm, I'm going to be able to anticipate some value bets on the river and some bluffs on the river. I'm going to be able to bet a polarized range on the river. <clears throat> Anticipating that means that I can, do a, like an extra amount of bluffing on earlier streets, right? Because any hand that I'm going to bluff on the river is going to be a profitable bet on the turn. So I can take all the hands I'm going to value bet on the river, 
plus all the hands I'm going to bluff on the river. I can treat all those as value bets on the turn. Right? Essentially, I can say, like, if I have a hand that's going to bluff again on the river, I don't really mind if my opponent calls me on the turn because I might still win the pot on the river. So then I get to take all of those and I treat those as a value range and I get to do even more bluffing on the turn. Uh, and so you can get some pretty astounding results from this if you assume that we're going to have these perfectly polarized ranges where I know already on the flop that I have a hand that I'm going to value bet on the river and I know my opponent isn't going to have a hand that, you know, like I know that I'm going to be able to have the nuts on the river and he's not. If I can anticipate that on the flop, I can do a really, really, really high, like a, just a, a huge amount of bluffing on early streets because of that. I, I can leverage that nuts advantage that I anticipate on the river. Um, I, I can leverage that to do additional bluffing on early streets. The problem with that is that ranges rarely look like that in real no limit games. I mean, that it's a factor, and I think we all kind of know this. I mean, if you imagine that you're uh, in the big blind holding ace eight offsuit and facing a raise, especially in a cash game where there's not an ante, um, it's quite possibly not correct for you to call that raise. Even though Ace Eight might have like perfectly good equity, because you know that you're rarely going to make a nutty hand with Ace Eight, you're gonna you're a long way from showdown when you're just calling pre-flop. That's essentially leverage at work. You know, you're you're feeling the effects of leverage, and I think to some degree people understand that concept intuitively. Um, but I know when I first encountered this from you know, reading it in, in mathematics of poker, I took it way too far and was doing like a lot of overbetting and things that I should not really have been doing on earlier streets. And that's because you often don't know that you're going to have a nutty hand on the river. And if your opponent is constructing their own ranges correctly, um, you're not going to have a nuts advantage or not a huge one. You know, your opponent should also be playing in a way that makes it possible for him to, to not have a hugely capped range when he gets to the river. And... I think it's an important concept to understand uh, leverage. It's good to know, like it's a starting point. It, it, it's a diving off point. And then things get more complicated from there. And that was what I didn't appreciate when I first started, uh, you know, years ago when I read Mathematics of Poker. I thought this was like the end of multi-street game theory. And it's really just the beginning. Um, they, they, their leverage operates in the background of a lot of things. But then there's, there's many other concepts that go into betting on, on early streets. So the second chapter deals with uh, protection and semi-bluffing, yeah. which I actually think of as like two sides of the same coin. The way that I explain this, it, it, when we use a, a term like value bet or bluff, what we really mean is if you're value betting, you're expecting most of your EV to come from times when you're called or raised. You're expecting, I'm going to have good equity against the range of hands that continues to put money in the pot against me. When you're bluffing, you're expecting most of your EV to come from the times that your opponent folds. You say, I think my opponent is going to fold hands that would have a good chance of winning, You know, that would be favorites to win, if uh, I let him go all the way to showdown. That's kind of what we mean when we say value better bluff. Before the river, not a lot of hands are pure value bets or pure bluffs. Even if you think about three betting like pocket aces before the flop, uh, I mean obviously you're you're hoping for action. Um, you're, it's usually plus EV to get called when you three bet with aces. It's certainly plus EV to get four bet when you three bet with aces. But you also benefit from your opponent's folds. If you three bet aces and your opponent folds ten seven suited, it's not as good for you as if he called. It's certainly not as good as if he four bet. 
but it's still better than letting them see a free flop, right? You, you still are, are benefiting to some degree from that fold equity. And that's much more obvious when we talk about a hand like ace king or pocket tens. Right. You know, even though you're you're usually when you're three betting ace king or tens, you're doing it because you think you have the best hand, or that's you know you usually do think you have the best hand often, but you're still pretty happy <laughs> to get folds because the hands your opponents are folding are hands that have a real chance of drawing out on you. So most bets before the river are benefiting to some degree from both equity when called or pot equity and from fold equity. And there are, you know, like three betting ace king or betting top pair on the flop. We tend to call that a protection bet um, or sort of a a bet that benefits from value and protection. And then we have semi bluffs where we don't really expect to have to be ahead, but we know that we have a decent chance of improving. So you bet with a flush draw or something like that. We call that a semi bluff. I mean, ultimately, it's really just a continuum, though. You've got a spectrum of hands that get some of their value from folds and some of their value from calls. And it's useful to chop up that continuum and to call some of them bluffs and some of them value bets. But it's important to recognize that it is ultimately kind of an an arbitrary construct. And I think getting a little bit, and I've been guilty of, of perpetrating this myself, but I think it's useful to get a little outside of that framework of just, uh, well, I've got to have bluffs and value bets and a ratio between the two of those. Um, your bets are doing more than just, just bluffing or value betting. I like that a lot. <laughs> and I think one, one, one thing that helps some of us get into this idea early in our careers is to realize that like there are the times when you bluff and you feel pretty sure that your opponent's going to fold and you have this like really good bluffing spot. Um, and here you can think that in more of an exploitive situation, maybe maybe your opponent's very weak, and uh, uh, although game theory is still like very very relevant in those cases, like you know there will be some spots where you say, okay, I've got a, like a really bad hand, but I'm going to bluff. The other guy's going to fold a lot; it'll be profitable. And then there are other spots where you say, like, oh, I have like a premium flush draw; I don't really want to check behind. I'm going to bet I'm not going to get many folds at all, but like my equity is so good that I don't need many folds at all. Like there's a lot of value in this bet and my equity is very, very high when called. Then there are ones in the middle and you start to think of it as like a continuum where it's like, well, I'm not so sure this one's going to work, but like I do have that gut shot and an overcard, so that's fine. And, and, and you know, it's I, I remember this guy, Mike L, who was... Uh, a really awesome and prominent poster on the limit forums back in the day he used to call them like semi bluffs and he would capitalize the bluff and semi bluff when there was like more <laughs> bluff to it. And um, that was like very useful to me actually, you know, help me, yeah, help me think cool. about this on a continuum. Yeah. And, and that, that's a really good point. Also the, um, the how, how people make these decisions about, about bluffing, because I think for people who aren't thinking, and actually, so this this kind of brings me into chapter three, which is range construction, and this this is really more of a mechanical chapter of like what it means to think in terms of range construction and like a step by step process for for doing this, because when you're thinking in terms of building ranges, you're uh, I, I'm sure people have heard me use this analogy before, but it's more like you're solving a puzzle. You know, you're you're trying to find a solution to a puzzle. You're trying to assemble uh, the right combination of hands that's going to maximize your ev playing throughout the the rest you know playing the turn and and river if you're constructing a range on on the flop like part of what you're doing is you're getting some immediate value on the flop of whatever you know protection value or fold equity you're getting from a bet but you're also thinking about what what collection of hands am i going to want to play on later streets 
so when you're thinking about filling out a range on on the flop, um, and, and you have a choice like whether to bet with a draw, as you said, yeah, the overcarding gut shot example is is a good one. Um, I think a lot of people just make that decision based on a gut feeling about whether their opponent is going to fold. You said and so like, well, I didn't want to bluff because he could easily have top pair. Or I didn't want to bluff because he's a loose player. I didn't want to bluff because, and um, I mean that's fine. I, this is has always been people who have read platinum poker or heard me talk strategy on the show know this that um you know i i think you should go with that sort of thing when you actually have a basis for that feeling right like when where or when you have a feeling period the the thing that gets people into trouble is a lot of times they don't really have a feeling and so then people start to feel well i can't bluff unless i think he's gonna fold like if i don't know what he's gonna do i won't bluff the only time I'll bluff is when I have a feeling that he's that he's going to fold, and that's when you start to to get into trouble because then you're doing exploitative things without a basis for it, right? And so it, it's fine, it's good to play in an exploitative way, in an exploitable way, if you know what you're exploiting and you know your opponent is making a particular mistake. But once you get to the point where like I don't really know how my opponent is going to respond in this situation, if you just default to well, I'll just check and see if I make my straight, or you know, I'll just check and see if I if I make my overcard, you're potentially making some pretty big mistakes because at equilibrium, you know, you probably are supposed to bet some of these hands, and there's a chance that your opponent is going to make a mistake if you bet. Like checking isn't necessarily wrong, but it's not necessarily right either. And if you don't understand what the equilibrium would look like and what kinds of hands are at least good bluffing candidates in a given situation, you're never even going to consider making the bet. Uh, it's not that you have to do exactly what a solver tells you to do, but I think it's useful to be aware of what a solver would tell you to do so that you can make an intelligent decision about whether or not you want to do that thing rather than just saying, well, you know, I wasn't sure he was going to fold, so I just checked. Um. Yeah, that's 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 right. That's right. The flip side of this is when you semi bluff against somebody and they have like the best hand they can possibly have, and then hem and haw, and finally call. And then you get there on the river and they get angry at you, and it's like, whoa, <laughs> you had the best hand you could possibly have, and you almost still folded, and I had equity. Like, I mean, don't say this out loud, but like that's a sign you made a great semi bluff <laughs> on, on the yeah. turn. So the, um, the the process that I encourage people to use in in thinking about range construction is, I mean, it's it's really it's all about playing a range and not playing a hand. Which means your first thought is not just what do I hope my opponent is going to do given my current hand. It's not just like well I want him to fold, so I guess I have to bet big, or you know I have top pair, so I have to bet the flop. You start by trying to assess the situation. And saying, given everything that's happened so far, the action so far, what I know about this player, whatever information you have to help you think about your starting range versus his starting, like what are what are all the hands that I could have for getting to this situation? Which, if you're on the flop, is relatively simple. You're just thinking about, you know, if you raise before the flop and then one player calls you, you're just thinking about what is my preflop raising range versus what is his preflop calling range. And then as we get deeper into the hand, you've got more information to help you. I mean, you've narrowed your own range through actions you've taken, and your opponent also has narrowed uh, his or her range through the actions that they've taken. So you want to be factoring that in when, when, you're, when you're assessing the, the ranges. But so the first step is just to think about how does your range stack up against your opponents in this situation? Uh, which player is more likely to have equity, and also which player is more likely to have hands that um, that want to play large pots. 
often that's the same player. I mean, hands that want to play large pots are also hands that have a lot of equity. But what throws people off is when it's not the same player. Um, I think you see this a lot. People sometimes say, uh, you know, that that's a scary board for uh, a big blind caller. Or my opponent was a loose player, and so I was afraid that he might have, like, really smacked that uh, that jack 7-5 board because he could flop two pair. He would have called the jack-5 suited pre-flop. So, like, what if he has two pair? Um and so it's important to recognize, like, if you, there are some situations where you might have a stronger range than your opponent, like you raise under the gun, the big blind calls, and the flop is uh, seven seven deuce. But you almost certainly have more equity than the big blind as an early position raiser versus a big blind caller. Like something would be way out of whack if you didn't have more equity than the big blind did, even though the big blind is more likely than you to have a seven. And. So those more complicated cases where the player with the nuts advantage is not the player with the equity advantage, it can be a little counterintuitive to think through what's supposed to happen in those situations. And that's the next stage of, of range construction is once you think about the starting ranges, then you want to think about what ranges do I need to construct? So if, if you're the big blind in that scenario, you probably want to start by just checking 100% of your range on the flop. Technically, there are some flops where you're supposed to develop a donk betting range, especially with deeper stacks. Developing a donk betting range rarely adds a lot of uh, EV to your strategy. Like You can test this in a solver, and you can look at the solver the option to donk bet the flop. What if we just force the solver to check 100% of the time? Even on flops where the solver will have a substantial donk betting range, it rarely changes the EV of the strategy very much. So my general advice is, you know, and that, that's a big part of what this book is about, is like, how do we simplify game theory strategies? How do we look at this really complicated output that we might get from a solver and say, how do I turn this into something that I can do in real time, given that I'm not going to, I'm neither going to remember, you know, exactly how I'm supposed to mix all these different hands, nor would I really be capable of, you know, doing that in, in real time. So there should be a 26% chance that I bet this hand, but a 73% chance I bet that hand. Like, that's not really something we can reasonably expect ourselves to do. Uh, I mean, I think it is what players are doing in you know 300k tournaments. Um, if you're playing something less than that, uh, I think that you can get away with just doing a sort of approximation uh, a reasonably balanced uh, approach. And I think that means like simplifying. So as the big blind in that scenario, you probably just want to check 100% of your range. Now, if you're the preflop raiser and you have a choice, uh, so you, you're going to construct two ranges. You're going to construct a betting range and a checking range. And there might be some flops where you can get away with just betting 100% of the time. And this is another useful simplification. Like often you might see a solver will bet 93% of the time and check 7%. And you're probably better off just making that a 100% C bet. Like whatever exploitability you're introducing by having like a slightly too high C betting frequency is probably not worth the hassle of trying to develop a 7% check back range. So you want to try to simplify this, but you need to develop. I mean, there are flops where you need to have a checking range. Um, there, there are flops that are favorable enough for the big blind. Uh, nine, seven, six, two tone is the one that I look at in the book, where it's important that you have a checking range. And most people do this in a very exploitable way. Right? They just they bet when there's an obvious reason to bet. So if they have pocket aces and the flop is nine, seven, six, two tone, their thought is, oh my god, what? There, there's straight draws, there's flush draws. I have to bet. And they're not really thinking about, well, first off, I mean, if you're deep enough, betting and getting check raised when you have pocket aces on 9762 tone is, is pretty um, undesirable. 
It's, uh, if you're shallow, that's fine. You can just get it. Like if you have a stack to power ratio of three, I mean, you're not maybe you're not excited to get check raise, but like you can just get it in and it's fine. If you have a stack to power ratio of 15, where your hand is not strong enough to stack off, then like that's kind of a liability to bet. And and checking is something to consider. And what ends up happening then is because they bet all the obvious hands on the flop because they're not doing a range construction process. They're just thinking about like what's the obvious way to play my hand. I have an overpair. It's dangerous if I check, so I have to bet. And then they end up um, either they bet way too much because they bet everything, or they check a very exploitable range. And also, I mean, the betting range is exploitable also. But they just they they end up splitting their ranges in an extremely exploitable way, where people can check raise them and put them in nasty spots. People can make a lot of correct folds if the betting range is strong. People can attack the check because they're extremely capped after they check. They never check draws. They never check over pairs. Um, so learning to think about these kinds of things, to think about not just what I want to accomplish on this current street, but what are the situations I'm going to find myself in later, and what kinds of hands do I want to be holding in those situations? What will my opponent's incentives be on the turn after I check the flop? How do I take advantage of this? Um, what might the board look like on on the river? Like sometimes a straight is going to get there, so you want to have straight draws in your betting and checking range. Sometimes a flush is going to get there, so you want to have flush draws in your betting and checking range. Sometimes the backdoor flush draw is going to get there, so you want to have backdoor flush draws in your betting and your checking ranges. Uh, and when when you think of this in terms of constructing ranges, then the question you can ask yourself is, where does my current hand fit? Like, I know I want to bet some flush draws and check some flush draws. So the decision process is not as simple as, oh, I have a draw, so I bet. I was the preflop raiser, and I have a draw, so I bet. Right? If one, Once you recognize that you want to have some draws in both ranges, then you can ask yourself the question, is this flush draw better for betting or better for checking? And, I mean, the book talks a lot about how to answer those questions, but the most important thing, really, is just to be asking those questions in the first place. Yeah, that's really good. I... <sighs> I'm sometimes tempted to think about this in terms of like cooking where, you know, like the river play can be very, very, very cut and dried and very different from play on any other street. And, and, you know, it feels more like quote unquote pure game theory. And on the turn, you have to know what your ranges are, but you're also looking forward toward the river. Um, on the flop, it, it, it feels a little bit like you're cooking and like, you know, your ingredients are just starting to come together in the pan and you've got like, some liquid that you want to reserve so you know you like scoop some of it out of the pot and you keep it off to the side and it's like oh i'm gonna need an onion now and it's like okay i've got a bunch of onions but like which onion do i want to take out of the fridge like should i use one of my red onions or one of my like white onions and like <laughs> let's say this is pandemic time so you know it's it's not so easy to get all the ingredients you have weird <laughs> constraints and all the ingredients yeah you know, it's like uh Ooh, do I use one onion or do I use two onions? I could use two onions right now, but maybe I need them later, you know? <laughs> and uh, uh, except like the later is some other counterfactual situation. And like you're just, you know, and then sometimes there's something a bit unpredictable. You know, some things are browning that you weren't really sure were going to be browning. This is an analogy for like the effect of the flop on 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 your stew here, and uh, you know you just got to decide. You know you have some nice you, you you got different sections of the broth. You got stuff in your fridge. Uh, you know you're going to have to serve a meal someday. You know that's the river, and you just have to figure out how to piece it all together. What you might need later. What you might need at some other times. And uh, uh, you know if you're going to get an onion, which onion do you get? Someone's been reading Jacques Pepin's memoirs. I have, I have, I have. Well, I've also been trying to cook with a yeah, boy. Have I talked about this on air? I'm getting my groceries no. from a from a from a restaurant uh, uh, supply. 
Yeah, I don't know if we did that. You, you definitely told me that, but I don't know if we did it on air. Yeah, I think I, I DM'd you about this. So, like, I've got, I've got like, a dozen smoked fish in my fridge right now. <laughs> that's almost my only protein. Uh, I mean, that's not true. Um, but, you know, I've got that and some pea protein and a lot of beans. Uh, so, you know, like, those are my proteins. What am I, how, how am I going to uh, engineer a week's worth of meals here? And I made Cincinnati chili this morning. So, that's that. The um, the analogy that I, I, I use it a little bit in the book, but I ended up not going real into depth into it because, as you know, sports are not my um, my forte. But I'm, I'm tempted to think about this uh, sort of like you're a, a manager and you're putting together your roster for the coming season. Um, and you want to be thinking about what players do I want to have on my team and so this is the part where I'm, I mean, you can, I hope you will correct any, any wrong assumptions here, but I think in general, you're not just trying to choose individual good players, right? You're trying to think about um, how are the players going to interact with each other? You want players who will complement each other's strengths and will uh, sort of compensate for each other's weaknesses. So when you're putting together a betting range, like, you know that you might get check raised, and that's fine, and it's okay to have some hands that are going to have a tough decision if they get check raised, or even some hands that are going to have to fold if they get check raised. The key is, you know, knowing that you're going to be betting those hands, you know that you're giving your opponent some incentive to check raise. Like if you're going to be betting pocket aces on nine seven six two tone, you're going to be betting ace king on nine seven six two tone. Those are both hands that give your opponent incentive to check raise. Um, one of them gives an incentive to check raise once and then give up. One of them gives incentive to check raise and keep betting. So already you've got sort of a mix of hands, but they're both hands that are going to be unhappy to face a check raise. So then, you know, what other players do you need on your team? You need a player who is happy to get check raised. So you want to be betting like the nut flush draw or top set, right? other kinds of strong hands where you're like, oh, I hope he does check raise me. And he might check raise you because he has a lot of incentive to check raise you on a board like that one. There are other boards where your opponent's going to have less incentive to check raise, and then you know you might construct your ranges differently. So thinking ahead to you know what kinds of challenges am I likely to face on on later streets, and what kinds of things am my opponent likely to do? Maybe this isn't even so much putting together like drafting a roster as much as like setting your starting lineup for for the coming game. You know where you're you have some more specific information about what you might face and what you need to be prepared for, and then your range is sort of all the. Um, all the players that you want to have on your team. And of course, you're only ever playing one hand at a time. But from your opponent's perspective, the information your opponent has is what your incentives are in this situation. So your opponent can look at a board like 9762 tone and say, well, this is kind of a rough board for the under the gun raiser. And this doesn't require your opponent to have any information that's specific about you, right? This isn't him saying, oh, that Nate Mavis, you know, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't open 10-8 suited under the gun, or he doesn't open even more so than 10-8 suited, like he doesn't open 8-5 suited under the gun. So he's not going to flop a lot of straights on this board. Like, it's not just a coincidence that you don't open those hands under the gun. Like, there's good reasons why you don't open those hands under the gun. So this doesn't require the player, like, this is a big misunderstanding about game theory. People think that it requires, you know, some specific information about them and their strategy before their opponent can exploit them but actually what happens is if, if you just do the kind of like obvious intuitive stuff like on this nine seven six two tone board you always bet your over pairs um that's not really a, a something that's specific to you that's just how anyone would play if they didn't deeply understand uh how to like balance and 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 how to construct ranges then there are some obvious exploits to that but anyway i started rambling um how how 
apt is that sports analogy. Yeah, it's good. I would think of it more as allocating finite resources a lot of the time. Like basketball is pretty good for this. Um, players can usually play X out of the 48 minutes of a game. And it's, uh, it's a challenge to like use your, you know, whatever, your Tim Duncan minutes uh, correctly. And you do that by coordinating and thinking about who's on the other team, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And there's, there, there, there's a matchup thing. So like, yes, there, there's the matter of coordinating diverse uh, talent which is different from sort of the, the back of the, of the sports card, this, just the raw statistics. Um, and there's also the, the, yeah, the aspect of, of optimizing those combinations when, you know, in, in, across a variety of, of scenarios. Like, you would love to bet all your nuts and then also have all your nuts in your check-behind range, but yeah. you, know, you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's that's a really good. I'm, I'm glad you said that part because that's another. You know, people tend to think, well, and I mean, this again, this is something that I've said and, and thought before. But you know, a hand like the nut flush draw, you can say, well, that's a really good betting hand. So you know, you have to bet that. Yeah, but it's also a really good checking hand. Like it's just a really good hand. Like, it has really high EV no matter what you do. And um, I think about this, or like imagine a, a dryer flop, like the seven seven deuce flop. And you know, is which is a better hand to bet, aces or tens? I mean, one way you can answer that question is look at the EV of betting both, and like you're going to have a higher EV betting aces than betting tens because it's just like it's a, that's a stronger hand; it has more EV no matter what you do with it. But the the delta, the EV difference between betting versus checking, is probably higher with the tens. Right, you're probably gaining more by betting the tens than you are by betting the aces because the tens benefit from calls and folds. When you bet tens on seven seven deuce. You're usually expecting that you're going to be in good shape against the calling range. Like most hands are worse than tens on that board. Um, but also, sometimes your opponent is going to fold a jack or a queen or a king or an ace. Like they're going to fold some cards that have live equity against you. Pocket aces is in slightly better shape against the calling range. Not much better. I mean, they're most of the hands that you're getting called by, you have about the same equity with tens or aces. Um, aces is in slightly better shape against the calling range, and it's gaining much less from the folds. When you have pocket aces, you don't much care about making your opponent fold king eight on a seven seven deuce board. When you have pocket tens, that's worth something to you. When you have pocket sixes, it's worth a lot to you. So there are some hands where even though they are not like the highest EV bets, what you really care about is what's the difference in EV between betting and checking. And uh, like pocket aces on the seven seven deuce, if you're not just betting your full range, you're probably indifferent between betting and checking the flop because even though it plays very well as a bet, it also plays very well as a check. With pocket tens, you might well have a, a pure preference for for betting the flop. Betting might be strictly better than checking, uh, and that's often the case where the hands that you really have a strong preference are the ones that benefit from both calls and folds. Those are the most important bets to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And somewhat relatedly, there are also those times when people get trapped by like how one particular hand looks and their range is just crying out for something or other like, like, oh, I have a really good hand, like I backed into a really good hand. And yeah. I thought my, my opponent might be confused if I just bet out when I'd been check calling. So I bet out. And it's like, mm -hmm. oh, think about your range. Like, like, like you have this weak range, like maybe you were calling a little too much before, but even if you weren't like this card is so good for your opponent. And like, you happen to have, you have this like, uh, 
this the, you, this valuable resource, and you just must use all of it to protect this super weak uh, range that 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 you have. Like you just need to check all your range, and then uh, these hands are going to be really really valuable because your opponent should be bluffing a lot, right? And um, yeah, the metaphor of like protecting a range instead of protecting a hand. Like sometimes, you know, it's uh, I got I got all these like fragile eggs in in my checking basket, and I need to put, you know, I, I need to protect those fragile eggs. Yeah, I, I love that example. I mean, the the when there is like a, a, a weird hand where like most of the time this is gonna be a really bad card for you, but like this just happened to be the weird time that it actually helped. Like the you know the river is a four, and like usually that's a total blank, and your range is much weaker than your opponent's. But you just happen to have pocket fours, so like it turned out that was actually like a really gin card for you. Um, yeah. the, the way you create deception is by playing your strong hand the same way the play same way you would play the rest of your hands, which you know, mostly you have a range that wants to check there, and so the fact that you have like this one random hand that you'd be happy to bet with, well, it's also a hand where you're happy. To to um, induce bluffs, induce value bets, and get in a check raise, and so that really is is what you would like to do. Um, the the only thing I I don't like the protection um, now the, the idea of like protecting a range. You're, you're not wrong, of course, but I think a lot of people it, it contributes to a misunderstanding about why you're checking the fours there. That, um, that that you're somehow sacrificing current EV in the interest of gaining EV in some future situation. Like I need to show my opponents that I'll check fours here so that they won't bluff when I check ace king or you know whatever other hand you might have that that is one of those vulnerable eggs. Um, yeah. I I would rather say that the fact that you are going to be checking some hands that will have tough decisions after checking and facing a bet gives your opponent incentive to bet after you check, which gives you incentive to check when you have a hand that wants to face a bet. So it, it's about making more money with the hand you currently have. It's not... Because then people start to think, well, if I'm never going to play with this person again, why do I care about balance? Right? Why not just come right out betting? And the reason is, if you come right out betting, the only hand you would ever do that with is pocket fours. Right? And again, that's not that's not a you thing. That's not like, oh, that Nate Mavis, he always bets when he rivers a set. It's just like you have no incentive to bet there as a bluff ever. Like you would you just wouldn't have blood. Like if you check called the flop, you check called the turn, you probably just don't have really weak hands that would suddenly like bet a random blank on the river as a bluff. Like that's like if you were gonna bluff, you would have check raised the flop or you would have check raised the turn. Like that was where your incentive to bluff was. So when you suddenly come out betting on the river, I mean there might be some really weak opponents who are just like, that's weird, I call. But anyone who's like actually thinking about what you're doing or representing is going to be able to sniff out and deduce what you have uh not through experience with you but just through a feature of the situation and thinking about well what would like you're not really supposed to have a betting range there at all um what kind of hand would you be likely to bet oh probably really a really strong hand you know people like to create deception and they think that the way that creates deception is just always by doing the opposite so you know there if i bet with a weak hand that's deceptive and if i check with a strong hand that's deceptive i encourage people to think about deception as you play different kinds of hands the same way so in situations where you're going to bet lots of weak hands you also bet your strong hands and that's deceptive in situations where you're going to check lots of weak or at least medium strength hands like the one that you described you also check your strong hand and that's deceptive Yep, I like that a lot. The um the the most of the rest of the book is kind of it's actually built around an idea that um I don't I don't know if you remember this or if it made as much of an impression on you as it did on me, but um on episode one seventy seven we had uh, 
Alex Sutherland on the show, who is a, a creator of GTO Range Builder, um, which is a, it was an early solver. I don't know how much use it's it's getting anymore, but um, at the time it was it was the only solver that I had used, and I was not using it well. <laughs> and we had a conversation about that. And what he said that really, I mean, it ended up shaping a lot about how I how I put together this book is. It's not, um, I don't know if he used the back of the textbook example, but he definitely used this, micros- this microscope example. It's not like you're just looking in the back of the textbook to see, you know, wh- what's the answer? What am I supposed to do here? Uh, what you're doing is it's, it's, you're conducting experiments, right? So you're using it like a microscope. And what you want to do is change a single variable and see how that changes the outcome. So what I end up doing on this book is there's a couple of flops that we look at a few different times. Uh, and this is 976 two-tone is one of them. And then we'll look at the same flop. We keep everything else the same. Pre-flop ranges are the same. Starting positions are the same. Betting options for both players are the same. And we just change one thing. So what if we switched it around? What if we made the stack to pot ratio 4 instead of 15 on the flop? How would that change the play? What if we made the stack to pot ratio 1? How would that change the play? And the the ultimate like one of my big concerns is that people are going to come away from the book thinking like well this is a book about how to play nine seven six two tone flops like what about other flops um you know we're looking at that as an example the the point is to understand how does correct strategy change with stack size how does continuation betting strategy change if you're in position versus out of position um how does barreling the turn change if it's a blank turn versus a turn that completes a draw? Right, those so just trying to like change one factor at a time, and then look at how that ends up changing the overall play, and like what is the difference between playing with a high stack to pot ratio versus a low stack to pot ratio? What's the difference playing on a board that's very favorable for the under the gun raiser versus a, a board that's very favorable for the big blind caller? Uh, ultimately, the goal again is to understand poker to understand how does each of these factors, factors that everybody knows are important, right? We all know that board texture matters. We know position matters. We know stack size matters. And the point is to understand at a a much finer level of detail, how do they matter? How do you integrate those things into the decisions that you actually have to make while you're playing? Yeah, that's great. And I think people who have tried really hard to learn like any other technical or even any other non-technical subject will be aware of this. Like really, really zooming in is not only a way to get practice thinking about something, but also somehow a way to examine the essence of, of part of a domain. I'm thinking of Josh Waitzkin when he's talking about like, you know, you study some end game that, that a coach prepares for you in chess and you study it and you study and you study it. And they say, aha, like that's what a rook is, you know, like that's like the essence of a rook or you like grasp it a little bit more. Or I think mm-hmm. some famous player said that like knights move in circles around the board and it's like, okay, that's, that's a metaphor. That's a metaphor. <laughs> it's like, man, imagine how well I would have to understand chess for that to mean anything to me, like much less like to understand it in this like profound way that this chess master does. And, um, yeah, you know, on a poker level, I was I was talking to Ariel Schneller about 15 years ago, I guess, and he was talking about you know something somebody had said to him, and it was about a flush draw, and he just sort of squinted and he said like, I was like, do you know what a flush draw is? <laughs> and, like, and there's that, and then I realized that like you know 
I, I didn't really know what a flush draw was. Like, like, like really what's a flush draw? Like, like, like what's its essence in, in poker? Um, so I, I think that's, that's why you drill down. You really examine like the details of something. Um, you know, if you study quantum mechanics, you study the infinite square. Well, um, all, all these things, they help you understand the essence of some object in it. So, uh, yeah, you know, you really, really learn what position is and it's just so much better to do that than to try to grab a lot of things in a scattershot way. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I salute your, uh, your approach here. Yeah, the, the scattershot thing is so common. I mean, I think especially now because there's so many places to get like free poker information. And yeah. a lot of stuff that's ultimately entertainment is sort of marketed as and it's easier to convince yourself that it is strategy information so like when yeah. you watch poker go you know they're they're talking some strategy like you're going to learn something watching it probably but it's not like for people that i'm coaching my recommendation is you need to distinguish between stuff that you're doing for entertainment and stuff that you're doing for study and stuff that you're doing for study should be focused, right? You should have a, in mind, like, I'm trying to work on value betting. I'm trying to work on hand reading. And you should be seeking out materials that focus on those subjects. And you should be actively practicing those things while you're playing. Just because something sort of like has a strategy component to it doesn't automatically mean that you're practicing or that you're learning something when you're when you're watching it. Uh, just, just picking up those like random bits of, of strategy somewhere, um, yeah, I, like I, I think my approach is to try to do something much more coherent, like this book, <laughs> for instance, or you know, some of my series on, on TV where I try to um, delve in, into a particular subject. But I think like understanding a subject well is much better than you're just trying to get one-off answers to like what should I do in this situation. I agree. I could talk about this for a very long time, but we've we've gone on a pretty long already. So I can yes. yeah. Let me let me just say. One thing about the last chapter here, um, which this is actually one that I added at the request of uh, Danny Sprung, who's a frequent frequent podcast guest, um, excellent poker and bridge player. And uh, he has read actually a couple of drafts for me. A lot of people have been helpful to me in, in putting together the book and giving me comments on it. And Danny is right at the top of that list of in terms of both like the number of times that he looked at a draft and the uh amount of feedback that he the i mean catching typos is is, is part of it um but also do you know, having bigger picture com- comments about like maybe you should add some stuff about this or explain this differently just he was just a huge huge help so thank you danny um but one of the things he suggested was you know he he really only plays tournaments and or as, I, I don't want to quite get that wrong but he's, he's most interested in tournaments anyway um and this is not uh, a cash game book or a tournament book. I mean, it really is, is a book about poker. So I wouldn't want people to look at it and think like, oh, Andrew's example has just come from cash games and I play tournaments, so this has no relevance to me. Um, but there are some concepts. So like, it's it's not that this is like the only chapter dealing with her. Like, this is mostly a cash game book with a, with a chapter on tournaments or something. But there are some concepts that are tournament specific. Like, there are some things that come up in tournaments that don't come up in cash games. I actually think, I mean, so if you think about, you know, what is a tournament? What is the essence of a tournament? Uh, I really like David Sklansky's tournament poker for advanced players. Like, I think he's very good at thinking about what makes a ter- what makes tournament poker play different from uh, other other play. Yeah. The thing is, functionally, what makes it different is antes and shorter stacks. 
And those things are not actually specific to a tournament. Like you can play a cash game with Andy. You can play a cash game with shorter stacks. So when people think about, you know, why do you play hands differently at a tournament than in a cash game? It's not usually because of the like the uh, winner take all element of a cash game versus the kind of survival or ICM implications of a tournament. That's not often where the difference comes from. Usually the difference comes from the fact that there's antis in the pot when you're playing the tournament and you have shallower stacks. So I do talk about those things. You know, there's there's a whole chapter on playing with shallower stacks, but I also talk about playing with antis in the tournament section. Uh, but then there is also the thing that really makes a tournament a tournament, which is that not all the money, you know, which is the way the money is distributed and, and, and the prize pool. And so that mostly comes down to, we call it ICM. I mean, the, the truth is ICM is just one way of modeling this and it's not a perfect way of modeling it, but it's the idea that you, at some stages of the tournament, it's always true, but there's certain stages of the tournament where this is heightened. Um, at certain stages of the tournament, you care a lot more about not losing chips than you care about winning more chips. And, I mean, you could write, like, I, I sort of had to, to limit myself because you could write a huge book on this, and I sort of feel like Sklensky has already written it. I mean, and Tournament Poker for Advanced Players covers a fair bit of this. But specifically in terms of how this interacts with game theory, it's interesting to return to the ace-king-queen game. So this is like the the very simplest toy game. It appears in Play Optimal Poker. It appears in uh, Bill Chen and uh, Ankeman's Mathematics of Poker. You can find discussions of the ace-king-queen game. Just, you just like Google it, you can find people talking about it. It's a very common way for, for talking about poker. Um, so then to return to the ace-king-queen game and say, what if we're playing a tournament? What if we're in a tournament, we're at a final table, and there's three players left at the final table, and we're playing the ace-king-queen game? How does that change things? Once again, we're just changing one variable, but this time it's a big one, right? So winning winning the pot does not win you the tournament or win you all the money. And then we look at how does the equilibrium in this game change? And it's not as simple as, well, you know, you don't want to take risks when you're at a final table, so you just never bluff. Or you don't want to take risks, so you just never call when you have a king. Um, it's more complicated than that, but it's also it's not the same solution as what you would get in the regular Ace King Queen game, and I think that's a, a it's a neat little way of making smaller circles around uh, ICM and understanding what are the changes in your play that you should be what are the things that you should be doing differently and why when you need to value your survival, but survival is also not the be all and end all like it's not as simple as just saying survive at all costs but there is a premium on uh on survival so the the, the tournament chapter kind of deals with really two very different subjects one of them playing with antis and one of them playing with um with the the, the value of survival and and the non-linear value of chips when you're playing in a tournament that is great uh, and that's thanks for th yeah, well, thanks for telling me about it. Thanks for telling me about it. And thanks for uh, doing with me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, thanks for uh, putting up with my fiesta of strange metaphors. So you know, <laughs> those are not in the book. <laughs> Don't worry. That, that, that was the best part. The the, the, the cooking metaphor, <laughs> browning the onions, the, the the limited quarantine onions. Yeah, 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 yeah. What are you going to do with them? You know, speaking of limited quarantine onions, uh, I'm going to go back and stir that chili. Okay, let me just remind people. Um, the book is Play Optimal Poker 2. You should read Play Optimal Poker first if you have not. Uh, you, both books are available at Amazon if you want a paper book, or if you want an ebook, you can get them from Amazon or from knitcast.com. N I T C A S T. 
www.thebookshop.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you like the books. of a car, the fair passage of a bill, and who will sign us into law? I know you won't, you won't.